0: committee i welcome you with open
1: arms is that so how late do you stay open you don't understand i could have had class i could have been a contender
0: i could have been somebody you want answers i think i'm entitled you
1: want answers i want
0: the truth you can't handle the truth i hope they are watching they'll see they'll see and they'll know and they'll say well, she wouldn't even have a fly
2: What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we are so excited to be with you for another week of Chicago Film Conversation. Uh, if you can't tell... Uh, we are coming to, you, <laughs> we are coming to you from a secret location uh, on the mobile disaster unit. There's a new little little <laughs> device thing that I've got going on. As you can, <laughs> you can hear the the fires churning. Yes, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful open floor plan we have
1: in this secret undisclosed location. Yeah, and for all of the regular listeners, uh, this should be of great concern to you because. You could find us one day outside of uh, a convenience store near you, just talking about Dune. Let's talk about movies. Talking about Dune, just right in the street, couple of couple of pairs of headphones.
2: Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir.
1: What do you think about What do you think about this? What What uh, (laughs) What are your feelings on the (laughs) Chom?
2: This is great improv, might I (laughs) say. This is great improv in a city known for its improv. This is This is great. This Um, is great. You know what? Uh, Later in the program, uh, talking to Bing Liu, it's a huge, huge opportunity for us. Uh, Thank you to Kartemkin Films and thank you to Bing himself for uh, getting this interview set up. Um, We talked to him about his Oscar nominated feature documentary, Minding the Gap, which you can watch on Hulu right now. Literally right now. Maybe not right now because you're listening to us, but like, you know what I mean. Yeah. Throw it on maybe in the background. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what you do. Don't put this on us, man. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit of uh, news right here. Uh, Plenty of stuff to talk about this week. One of the big controversies surrounding the Academy Awards. uh, They had this plan. They set out this memo saying that they were going to pass out certain awards during commercial breaks now this included uh best short film best live short film specifically uh hair and makeup but then also editing cinematography what the hell and everybody freaked out. I mean, we we saw responses from Quentin Tarantino. We saw responses from Martin Scorsese. Scorsese, the Scorsese, Scorsazio. You got, uh,
1: Alfonso Cuaron, who's Alexand- nominated for
2: Alexandria Scorsazio Cortez.
1: <laughs> that is sorry, uh, <laughs> that's really good.
2: That's oh God, it's that's so really fucking good. Uh, but also uh, Alfonso Cuaron who was actually nominated in the cinematography category, and he was really pissed off that, like... I I don't even think it was for himself. It was for everybody involved. He's like, this is the moment that cinematographers get the chance to be in front of everybody, their peers, the entire viewing audience, and you're going to take it away from them. Luckily, uh, after much protest by both uh, the... Not, not necessarily the viewing public. I don't know how. I mean, because millions of people view but the But it's outdoors. the filmmakers. The filmmakers who, who them themselves. the fervor. Yes. And uh, I think critics as well were also pretty riled up about right. having to uh, essentially demean these positions that are so integral to the filmmaking art. Um, I mean, cinematography is film. Right. And it's so is editing, and yeah.
1: depending on the film.
2: Yeah. Editing
1: is um is I mean what would a movie like Baby Driver be without editing if not a sort of problematic story about a boy falling in love with a girl. That is so
2: <laughs> That is I mean that's an amazing point. Um recently um Matt Fagerholm from Rogereber dot com, he cited Baby Driver as like, you know, say what you will about the movie. It's fantastic editing, spectacular editing. Um, It's
1: spectacular, I think, is a
2: great word for it. Yeah, And and that's the thing
1: that is probably most uh, offensive, I guess, about the Academy's attempt to do this is because it's a spectacle. I mean, editing shots together in a way that... That tells a story compellingly, like it's visual storytelling. That is the visual storytelling. That right. and cinematography. Yeah. that is what you're watching when you watch a movie. I mean, you're watching the performances, but if there wasn't that guy behind the camera, if there wasn't the person that was chopping up the scenes in a way that made it flow correctly, what you would be watching is just a bunch of uncut hours of like Brad Pitt going like, ey, 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 duh. so what are you really? What are you really talking about when you're talking about? Cutting these things and just sort of putting them on during commercial break. One spectacular Brad Pitt impersonation. Thank you. I was. That's exactly. I I fell right into Sylvester Stallone. I'll be (laughs) completely honest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it it is true that um, the Academy is trying to create something for. They're trying to create a product, and I understand that. But um, you know, with viewership down. I guess viewership down. That's not watership down. No, that's not the sequel. (laughs) Viewership down. (laughs) Viewership is down, and they're trying to cut, you know, make take measures to make it more interesting. And I'm just like, it should just be interesting in of itself, right? The thing is interesting in of itself, and frankly, I would not be so upset if they just like stopped broadcasting it.
1: Yeah, that just put honestly it on, wouldn't be the end of the streaming Warfare. services or something. It doesn't
2: have to be on a cable news yeah. network necessarily.
1: I mean, or what is even the,
2: like, what if what if what if they just stopped playing the Oscars? Like, if you just couldn't watch them, it was just a private event, and then they release the names of the winners afterward.
1: We've talked about this before with what our awards shows really because it's this really interesting sure. intersection between an event that's meant to honor the teams that create the films that we watch every year and throughout the year. Sure while it's also it's an intersection of that crossed with it's a product right it's a broadcasting product which brings in millions of viewers and it's a great money making machine so on on one end you know it's uh, an event to honor the people that are there but on the other end you could understand why the broadcasters would be freaking out a little bit. I mean, all of these things that were supposed to be the big money makers, for example, the Super Bowl, it had the lowest viewership since 2009 because of the stock market crash because people actually had more important things to do than watch (laughs) some people get permanent brain damage. But that's neither here nor there. The... It kind of reads as a decision made out of panic, I think, Mm -hmm. which is an understandable thing from a business perspective. Sure. But at the same time, the purpose of the oscars and giving awards to people like cinematographers and editors is it gives the opportunity for people who are watching this who are actually interested in it to learn something yeah. and maybe instill a sense of like oh i'm not somebody that feels comfortable in front of a camera or necessarily feeling comfortable and t- enough to tell somebody what to do and organize this whole project around it but I have a good eye for film, for, uh, for film or uh, photography. I have a good eye for how to tell a good story and not necessarily, you know, be the person that's actually speaking the lines. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's something that's that so gets lost when you don't broadcast that. Yeah,
2: that's so true. That's so, so true. And it comes down to sex appeal, I think, a little <laughs> bit. And um, it, have you ever – have you noticed recently that in a lot of movies, once you get to the end of the credits – it has this little message that says, you know, it took tens of thousands of tens of thousands.
1: Little Lord of the Rings, goddamn for you, <laughs> fucking tens of thousands. I'm sorry, <laughs> gentlemen, to bed,
2: gentlemen to bed. We're gonna hang out for a while after this, so I yeah. need to stop doing this. I yeah. apologize. <laughs> Just pull but, back on my leash. But, but when you watch, when you watch the. Um, when you get through the end credits of a movie. It has a little blurb that says it took tens of thousands of people with a hundred, hundreds of thousands of man hours to create this movie. Like it has this little, have you seen that? You've seen that, right? Yeah. At I the think end of the so. credits. Yeah. It t- tells you like, it reminds you like, Hey, it took a lot of people to make this happen. This is an industry. And, um, you know, I think the Oscars can be a reminder of that. And, hopefully and should be.
1: Should be. It should function like that. It's
2: the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that encompasses so many different things. It's not just Leo DiCaprio. And that's not to try and discredit how important actors are to the process right. or directors or screenwriters or anybody. Everybody puts in what they need to put in. And that includes. But it's not just them. No it's not just them. that includes people who make the costumes for the favorite, right, which is uh, a period piece that took probably thousands of hours to put together these ornate, beautiful costumes, doing the state like the setting and doing the uh, production design, all that kind of stuff, and to um, potentially take that away from people is, um, it's, is just heinous. It's it really denying heinous.
1: them an opportunity for literacy because especially, I'm glad you brought up the favorite because in period pieces in general, set decoration and costume design is so important in order to Really tell the time, build the world around the time period. Yeah, it's things that you kind of have to. If you know a lot about Victorian era, you know architecture or whatever, you can look at these things, look at these sets, look at the little things on the costumes, and and notice things that are not going to be explicitly said to you, but it tells you something about the character. It tells you something about the setting or whatever the case may be, which which is what really frustrates me with the Academy's decision to well attempt to air these awards during the commercial break or earlier on in the year try to introduce the popular film category because it makes it less about the people that they're trying to honor and more about making it a piece of entertainment which is very transparently on behalf of the broadcasters what they're saying is entertainment is more valuable than education Mm -hmm. and that is
2: not true I think I think you've just put it beautifully. All right. Also, other big news this week uh, for all you Dune heads, for all you Ericine Spice Boys, are you Mwad dweebs? <laughs> <laughs> That's a little too real for me. Hey, oh my god! It's
1: okay. We can we can make fun of ourselves.
2: Yeah. Um, big news this week in terms of. Not only casting, more casting. We talked about this, I think, last week. For to much success, <laughs> much success, tons of crazy casting. Uh, but we now also have a release date for Denis Villeneuve's uh, version of Dune. Dune, Dune, and that is just one of the wonderful ways you can say that word. So uh, I know that we got a big casting in terms of Jason Momoa. Yep. The Aquaman himself, the Wet Thor, courtesy of Clint Worthington. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh uh, my God, moniker. Yeah, read read Clint over at the Spool. Mm. Uh, check it out, new site. But. Um, <laughs> Jason Momoa is going to be playing uh Duncan Idaho, correct? Yep, Duncan Idaho. So the swordmaster. Yeah. For 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 context, can you tell people like who Duncan Idaho is? Duncan Idaho is a soldier for the
1: Atrides House, um, which is what Paul Atrides is a, a member of. He's the heir to the uh to the Duke ship, the, the Dukedom, whatever you would uh call that. But uh, Timothy Chalamet is going to be playing that, and Duncan Hida- Idaho plays a very central role in his development, in training him to become a member of the aristocracy. Because the political context of Dune is there are all of these big houses, mm-hmm. and there are all these wars that are being fought. Assassinations are very commonplace, and uh, just kind of political treachery is sewn into the very fabric of the of the narrative. Right, and right. the none of these. Khan Lees as they're referred to uh, are these are bigger than the one between House Atreides and House Harkonnen. House Harkonnen owns the planet Dune and then there is a by behest of the Padishah Emperor <laughs> Atreides and ha- House Harkonnen switch their fiefdoms so House Atreides has to go to learn to live on this giant desert planet
2: which is where Dune takes place and I just want to take a moment here for everybody Uh I'm, I'm enthralled by you and your, your knowledge of Dune. Well, it's just uh, so far it's pretty surface level.
1: Duncan Idaho is, uh, like I said, a member of uh, the Atreides Army, and he is essentially the he he has a couple of roles. He's the lead bodyguard, lead bodyguard for uh, Duke Leto, uh, the father of Paul. And he is also the one who is training young, the young lord, Paul Atreides, in, in swordplay and fighting and basically just all things about how to defend himself, given in the event that somebody tries to take his life, which is, you know, as he's raised to believe, very likely that at some point yeah. someone will try to do.
2: I think the biggest thing I'm excited about for the Dune movie is um, perhaps getting a definitive uh, pronunciation for many of these names. Names, yeah.
1: Is it Atreides? Because the it's revealed in the later books that they have this long lineage that goes all the way back to Agamemnon, I believe, the Greek warlord that led the Greek forces during the Trojan yeah, army. Are you, wait, are you fucking serious? During the Trojan War, yeah, that's wild. That's yeah, because it's house. I think it's so. I think it's pronounced Atreides, but my, like like it's Greek. It's Greek. That's not, that's how I was pronouncing in my head. Yeah, they're, uh that's their like extended lineage. It's
2: a okay yeah well there's going to be plenty more dune talk coming especially uh over the next few months because the big news is that this dune this star-studded dune cast which includes people like uh as you mentioned timothy chalamet alexander skarsgård um you've got zendaya who Mm -hmm. we all know from spider-man homecoming is playing chani i believe Yeah, she's chani uh Um, we've got oscar isaacs in it yep and the duke josh brolin playing gurney halleck yeah unbelievable an unbelievable cast, and uh we're gonna be seeing this movie next year, yeah, that's the- and here's here's what I'm a little bit worried about though, because when you make promises like that, like this is a movie that has so much scale and so much involvement um there's a lot of like i don't know tech that goes into everything, the sets are very are generally expected to be very ornate, right. Are they giving themselves enough time? I know. Well, unless they're going to CGI everything, which is doesn't that doesn't seem like Denis Villeneuve's bag. That's not really his thing.
1: Um, I wonder if Denis has been has had his eyes on this property for a long time because we haven't heard any talk about anyone trying to remake Dune until Denis Villeneuve did it. Because you know, I mean, there's a lot of properties that get passed around a lot, but Dune almost in terms of Ad- adapting it for the screen has almost set up with an expectation of failure, failure, right? Yeah,
2: because you've got David Lynch's Dune, which is more or less a failure. you got Jodorowsky's Dune, which is pent up in storyboard.
1: Never yeah, that film. never happened. Never
2: hit pre-production. Um, you had, well, there was a, a television series yeah, version. Yeah, Children of Dune. It didn't really work out. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's almost it's almost considered to be like a dangerous pro- yeah. yeah it's a dangerous property because it is so involved and i mean we won't get we talked about this last week if you want to hear more of our thoughts about adapting dune uh tune into the previous episode but um i'm just i'm just curious as to how quickly they're going to need to work to make this a reality this is right. this is like any blockbuster filmmaking i mean a, the typical film shoot is like mm, what four months yeah I think that's pretty average, and that's with a lot of involvement. Um, But how long does... Pre-production can last literally years. Right. And so I wonder if they've been in pre-production this whole time, getting everything ready, getting locations ready, because if they're shooting for next year, even late next year, they're going to have to be really on top of their shit. And I imagine this is going to be a movie that's going to require a lot of editing, too, a lot of post-production. So hopefully they've come together and... uh, you know, thought about how long this is really going to take to do it right. right? Because if you fuck it up again, then it's like, how many more chances can you take with this property? Is it strike three? I mean,
1: are we going to have to wait 30 more years for somebody to take a crack at it? Yeah. Uh, um, obviously, this has a history of competent filmmakers kind of doing it a disservice, but Denis has proven himself as a very competent filmmaker. So I, at the very least, at this early stage of where we can really only do anything do nothing but speculate i personally hope that he has a you know that he that he's been planning this for at least a couple of years and, and mm-hmm. maybe has his all of his sh- all of his ducks in a row for sure all of his shit ducks in a row
2: speaking of adaptations um big news out of amazon who paid what a billion a billion, or, billion dollars appro-
1: approved a billion dollars for the budget for lord of the rings
2: yes uh the amount of money they paid was a- astronomical uh, but they have the rights to the Lord of the Rings now um, and they've been developing a television series version of it and uh, Connor they recently tweeted out a map of Middle-earth but it's not quite the map we remember from the Peter Jackson films is that right right um, it is entirely based off of obviously Tolkien's map I mean they have all
1: of the the rivers and the Misty Mountains and the Ravanian and everything there but um, it's un. Itemized. It's completely blank. There are no names on it. They're, they don't have any of the, you know, they don't label the Shire or Mordor or anything. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I'm excited about when I look at this is, and now we'll, we'll give you a second to pull up the, the map here for you guys to look at. All right, now that you've pulled up the map, um, <laughs> we, w- when you look at... When you watch The Lord of the Rings, what you're looking at is pretty much the entire west coast of of the map. You've got the Shire in the northwest corner, and then down in the southeast corner, diametrically opposed, is this sort of like half or three-quarter box of mountains, which encased in which is Mordor, where Sauron is and everything. And you got the Misty Mountains, and then in The Hobbit, you go across the Misty Mountains through the forest to the west, where there's this big lake, Lake Town, very imaginative name. Uh, you've got the this sort of white area called the Desolation of Smaug, and then you have the Lonely Mountain and everything. But if you, as Gandalf said, look to the east, uh, there is a part of Middle-earth which has only ever appeared on Tolkien's map and never actually gotten any stories outside of a few from the Cimmerillion, I believe. Uh-huh. And this region is called Rune which is east of the Iron Mountains, which is where the dwarves and the Hobbit come to help out during the Battle of the Five Armies. But you never actually even see the Iron Mountains. That's such that's so like far northeast of where the events of the Hobbit take place. It's never actually been really touched. So I'm, I'm assuming that the reason that they're showing this to people is to say that... Look, guys, this is going to be a holistic approach to Middle-earth. We're going to be telling stories all over this place, and it's not going to involve Sauron. It's not necessarily going to involve the ring, and you don't really know what to expect.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's some thought that there... One, uh, let me me congratulate you on your encyclopedic knowledge of Tolkien's universe. And I, I think that just speaks to the... I don't know how much, how much this world means to many people. Yeah. I consider myself quite a fan of Lord of the Rings and, and Tolkien's writings, but, um, and you know, I, I'm one of the people that has read the Silmarillion and I feel like I understood it and enjoyed it, but, um, you've got such encyclopedic knowledge and, and that, that can be translated into something real and tangible about this world that makes, that gives the world weight. So, that's why I wanted to make sure that we chimed in on this because when it comes to the storytelling of middle earth, it was, I feel like it was realistically a exercise in world building, not necessarily storytelling, although it is storytelling. And, um, Jared Tolkien was a professor of language and like studied the way that stories were told. It seemed like he wasn't trying to write books books so much as he was trying to create a world.
1: Well, there's a quote from Tolkien and I'm glad that you picked up on that because mm-hmm. I entirely agree. Um, and there's a quote from Tolkien where he said that the impetus for him creating Middle-earth was because he was passionate about cartography and he made a map and made stories to fit inside the map. He made the map first. yeah, And he made the Elvish language first, which a lot of people don't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, when most people go about writing the stuff like... Uh, george r R. martin or whatever they have these ideas in mind based off of you know western european history or whatever and then they just sort of inject these stories that they want to tell because they're brilliant historians and study years of history and they just sort of inject it into this you know world that is entirely just europe right but what what tolkien did um is completely different he sort of like a like a like a biblical creator almost he took all these abstract concepts these super deeply ingrained things that he's passionate about that are, around which entire cultures can be created language mm-hmm. and geography and physical world and he created those pieces first with such astounding detail no one had ever done anything like that before and then he put in the stories
2: right and if i if i remember correctly and this is from watching a lot of the appendices on the uh, lord of the rings extended editions which were a huge film thing for me that basically got me into extended film in terms of like watching a movie that takes almost three four hours right um and i think for a lot of people that watching the lord of the rings growing up especially millennials people in our age bracket was a huge deal the lord of the rings was a huge deal even if you didn't really get it you were like man these are fucking cool yeah there's something there's something ineffable about that. and they were and they were definitely a uh uh return for fantasy cinema it brought fantasy cinema back to the forefront or rather you know or at the very least swords and sorcery yeah you know it brought made swords and sorcery like cool to watch and it and it totally uh developed a blueprint for how to do swords and sorcery on film um, in the 21st century. All right. So, uh, coming up next, we have my interview with Bing Liu. He is the director and producer of Minding the Gap. It's nominated for best feature documentary at the Academy Awards, which we will be watching this Sunday. Um, you'll want to follow along with us. We'll probably be doing some live updates and everything like that. We're gonna get. We're gonna have plenty of reactions to that. Um, and. You want, you want to hear what we have to say. But now you want to hear what Bing has to say. It's a fantastic conversation. Uh, here we go. My conversation with Bing Lu, director and producer of Minding the Gap. I am so excited to be doing this interview right now. Uh, for those of you who have not seen it, Minding the Gap is a spectacular documentary that you can watch on Hulu right now. Uh, if you haven't heard anything about it, here's just a brief intro. Uh, it involves three young men who bond across racial lines to escape volatile families in their Rust Belt hometown of Rockford, Illinois. And 10 years later, while facing adult responsibilities, unsettling revelations force them to reckon with their fathers and their mothers and eventually each other. Right now, I'm talking to director and producer of Minding the Gap, Mr. Bing Lu. Bing, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: So, uh, as many of our listeners probably know, Minding the Gap has been nominated for an Academy Award. That's for the Best Documentary Feature. Uh, First off, congratulations. Uh, I I can't imagine how that must feel.
0: Uh, You know, it it feels pretty amazing. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's just unreal.
2: Absolutely, it's uh, one of those things that many filmmakers in their life might never have the chance to, uh, you know, accomplish. And uh, it seems like being nominated is just an exciting thing of in of itself. But we'll move away from the Academy Award conversation to more about yourself and the the movie Minding the Gap, which I adored. Uh, I was looking into a bit of your past as a filmmaker, and you worked on a number of productions, mainly uh, behind the camera, dealing with the camera. You have credits on Empire and even Jupiter Ascending. I wanted to ask you, what was it like to get in front of the camera with this one and, produ- you know, make your own film, produce your own film?
0: Uh, you know, I had you know, produced my own films before, but they're short. Um, so this one just sort of started off, the, you know, as a short, and then I just snowballed into a feature. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and the decision to be in the film as a character, so to speak, uh, was very very late decision. You know, it's something that the, the film sort of ends on a certain scene. I won't give it away, but there's a crucial interview that I do with my mother, the, the anchor of my storyline, that I didn't film until a year after the, the last scene of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know, and and I didn't you know it, it was it was difficult when I was, once I went and actually did uh once I actually went and executed like what I was filming to to just for the purpose of putting myself in the film. But um in terms of just you know, initially thinking about putting myself in the film, I thought of it more like a uh like a like a character problem in a sense. Like I didn't want to make the film seem like a personal doc or a naval gating thing. Um so that's that's sort of how I approached it.
2: Well, in a previous interview, you mentioned that you took a journalism class where the professor was kind of old style journalist where you don't want to put yourself in the story. But uh, in documentary films, it's pretty common for the director to sometimes step in front of the camera and uh, show the artifice of what they're doing and maybe include themselves in the story. Uh, For you, how does that change what a documentary is saying or perhaps the effectiveness of a documentary?
0: Well, I mean, I don't think every documentary is right for uh, making that decision, but um, you know, I think it just—it it all goes back to what is the purpose of what you're doing, for me, as the storyteller. Um, yeah, and the purpose of me putting myself in the film was to show the audience the, the 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 journey. Like, there's something that happens in the middle of the film that really steps up the, the filmmaker's journey. Um, in a new way, and the filmmaker is sort of, you know, you expect the filmmaker to confront somebody in the film, um, but it's a very tricky situation, and so the purpose of putting myself in the film was to show you, you know, a behind-the-scenes look at, like, how the filmmaker is navigating telling the story so that by the time you get to this confrontation, you know, like, you have all the breadcrumbs and all the context needed to understand, like, why the confrontation is meaningful um, in in a broader way.
2: And this documentary also includes uh, two of your closest friends, Kier and Zach. And I wanted to know, was there any initial awkwardness about uh, telling their stories in this way? And you met, you've mentioned in interviews before that they're a little bit used to being on camera. You guys uh, you know, skateboard, and that's a huge part of the skate culture is to film one another, but... Uh, telling these kind of deeper, more personal uh, stories about your friends, what would, what helped you guys get over that and uh, help them get over that on camera?
0: Well, I want to be careful about your term closest friends, because I didn't meet one of them until five years ago. And the other one, I only you know, hung out with them a few times when I was a teenager before I moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a little bit more like a you know, more traditional documentary, filmmaker, subject relationship. But I think what, what I think you're trying to get at is you don't typically see men, especially young men, open up about things like, you know, how much hurt they felt when they were a child, when when, when their parents, you know, like treated them in a way that, that uh, made them feel in pain and vulnerable and like they weren't loved. And, you know, I, I think that because that's so rare, uh, you would assume that I think I had a really tough time getting there with them. But it's a two-way street. I think you know you just give people, uh, a, you, you give people a chance to tell their story and to really open up, and they're gonna to want to tell you. Um, you know, for from I feel like before making the film, I was somebody growing up who, you know, going to high school parties, I would uh, I would be the guy who would like to get someone sort of, uh, talking about their parents, they're talking about their emotional inner life. Because I think it helps me growing up in terms of just like connecting with other humans. Um, and so by the time I started doing this project, Minding the Gap, I think I was well primed in just knowing how to create a safe space and a conversation for people to just open up. And, you know, something I've learned from this project is like everybody just wants to talk about how they're feeling. You know, I think just different layers of repression that prevent people from doing so.
2: Do you think that uh, young men and people of the uh, men of the upcoming generation who are growing up, do you think that we're getting to a place where we're more comfortable talking about our inner lives in this way? Because, you know, it's kind of it's a little bit of a trope, but also based in some of a reality that as uh, as young men, you're kind of taught to keep to yourself. You don't cry. You don't talk about things that bother you. Do you see after making this film a trend that younger men are more amenable or more willing to talk about their personal lives in a more open and emotional way?
0: Well, it's a trope because it's true. I think trope sort of gets at this idea of like a dead horse way of talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think trope gets at the ineffectiveness of us, like you know, like trying to uh, change things. Um, but I, I think it's still a humongous problem. I mean, we still live in a patriarchal society where men are, are taught different script than women are, especially when it comes to emotions. That isn't changing. Um, what is changing is our, our, our acknowledgement of that script. I think that's sort of where you're getting at with that mm-hmm. idea, with idea uh, that trope, um, of, of this. And, you know, I think that's the first step, but I think... You know, one of the things that uh, is striking to a lot of people in the film is that there's a character named Kier, and he has this emotional honesty and this emotional transparency that he's heard. He just wears on his sleeve and is very open to processing his emotions. And it's hard for him. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to get to a place where you're comfortable, you know. And he said this to me after filming. He was like, you know, when we first started talking, like, you were really the only person I could talk to about my emotional life. I didn't really have anybody else because I felt like, you know, if I were to act that way in front of others, in front of my friends, like they would make fun of me. And then by the time, you know, years later when he wrapped filming, he told me, you know, like I've come, I've come to not feel that way anymore. I've come to just, you know, like if I want to express how I'm feeling, I express how I'm feeling. But it took years of hard work to do that. So I think on the one hand, yes, it's very true that I think a lot of men suffer from the scripts that they're Sometimes forced into buying into, but you know it's often not that easy to 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 break out of that, uh, but it's possible.
2: Absolutely. And and in, in this uh, year, I suppose, if we're looking at 2018, but also I would say this is uh, a few a few years coming and we're continuing to talk about it. Uh, in this time where masculinity is under investigation by a lot of people, both in uh, per, a personal sense and also in the greater uh, media narrative, how do you feel that your film Minding the Gap contributes to that investigation of masculinity?
0: I think um probably in the most twenty thousand foot way, you know, it it chooses it chooses to understand rather than to demonize. I mean that is sort of the, the emotional approach that I take in this film. I, I you know, I feel like demonizing can only get you so far. It can get you to the point where you can hold actions accountable, which I still believe in and which I still feel like I do in the film. But I, I think the bigger thing that I was trying to do is look at the causes and not just the symptoms.
2: Yeah. And and you definitely get to the root of these, uh, these things that masculinity and all, all the problems that it can, uh, create for, for young men. And I just, you know, not even a question. I just want to credit the film with that. Uh, watching it as, as a documentary really opened my eyes to, uh, being a man myself, uh, my own tendencies to trend towards what would be considered toxic masculine behaviors, even without necessarily thinking about it. And, um, I think Minding the Gap gets to that, where the people involved aren't necessarily aware that they're getting to that. But once you have them start talking, there's almost a self-reflectiveness in it. Uh, 2018 was also a big year for kind of skate culture movies or sk- you know, the subculture of skateboarding. Uh, we saw films like Mid-90s and Skate Kitchen, which are both uh, fictional films. And I wanted to know what you thought about why the skate community holds so much promise for storytelling, whether that's in documentary or fiction or what have you.
0: I feel like the three skate films is more of a blip than a trend. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that, you know, there's going to be a deluge of skate films coming up, but who knows? I don't know what the industry's thinking. You know, the, the projects are in pitch picture right now, um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I I think, again, I just think it's a blip. But I also think it's interesting that, you know, the three sounds, they all are very geographically relative. Uh, Sorry, I'm burping. I'm drinking this Canada Dry. (laughs) But, tonic water. Uh, You know, like the skate kitchen is such a New York centric story. You know, very, I just can't, it's hard to imagine how that story can exist outside of New York. Um, mid nineties is a very LA centric story and line in the gap is very much a story tied to the, the rust Belt of America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> sometimes no things are like, I feel like that happens a lot, right? Like it's the RBG movie and then there's based upon the basis of sex. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think sometimes there's just synchronicity. and how to,
2: well, you mentioned location, and location is super important to Minding the Gap. Uh, as I said earlier, it takes place in uh, your hometown, Rock- Rockford, Illinois. And uh, I will say I'm not far from, uh, I'm where I'm from is not far from Rockford at all. I'm from Crystal Lake, Illinois. Do you know roughly where that is?
0: Yep, yep, exactly.
2: Yeah, not far from Woodstock. And I've been to Rockford, and um, the way that you portray it is very fascinating. Uh, it's what Richard Brody in the New Yorker called a certain economic dislocation, uh, especially in the earlier, the very beginning of the film, there's quite a bit of talking about where Rockford is economically and what the subjects of the documentary are dealing with economically. I wanted to know, was there any sort of reaction from, uh, people from Rockford? Did they, uh, feel that it was an accurate representation and, um, I guess to follow up with that, uh, do you think Rockford might see, get any better? I, I know that's kind of a big question to ask, so we'll, we'll stick with what was the reaction from people from Rockford seeing the city uh, portrayed in this way?
0: People loved it. People felt like finally Rockford is put on the map. I mean, I think that's how deep the feeling of being looked over is in places like Rockford. You know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't beating up on it. There was there was six news bites total in the film, probably like 45 seconds of news mm-hmm. bites to give you statistics of Rockford. They're sprinkled between two different beats, you know, like one in the first 30 minutes and one in, like, uh, you know, I think like 50 minutes in or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Like, that's the only, that's all, that's like the only, like, you know, like, like fact-based or generalistic um, depiction of Rockford that I give you. Um, you know, the rest of it is just, like the landscape that happens in the background while these characters are going through their lives. I mean, it's not... um, And so, you know, I I don't think there was too much for Rockford citizens to grasp onto. They were just proud that something came out of Rockford, that somebody came out of Rockford, um, you know, that was able to put a a flashlight on, on, you know, Rockford lives.
2: Yeah, and it does a fantastic job as, uh, you know, I didn't have, I did not grow up in Rockford, but Rockford was always something we talked about. And, uh, you know, it's it's weird to think that for folks in uh, northern Illinois, when you think of Rockford, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is like Cheap Trick, which is pretty reductive for a uh, city full of people and full of stories. Um, I wanted to point out to our listeners that this film was put together using about 12 years of footage is that correct
0: yeah i mean that's <laughs> that might be a, a little bit, that might like uh, be a little misleading in the sense that um you know i filmed for about five years uh-huh. that's how long i worked with i was able to take footage that went back to 12 years um a lot of it not mine um, in order to tell this story of these people that i was
2: hmm. So when you sat down with editor Joshua Altman, uh, what were some of the difficult parts of putting this film together? Because I know documentaries uh, often come together in the edit, you have all this footage, all these stories that uh, you film, and you get folks talking, you know, telling their their side of the story. But when you got into the editing process, what were some of the hardest parts to make Minding the App a fully cohesive documentary?
0: Yeah, I mean, mostly it was just, um, my story. <laughs> you know, my story doesn't really stand on its own legs. It, it exists part and parcel to Zach and Kira's story. Um, and that's, I think, a result of me not really thinking of making the film with me in it until very, very late into production. Um, but we got Zach and Kira's stories up and going really quickly, partially because I had just been cutting for years while I was doing the film. And um, you know, it was, it was you know like before he came on, he told me to cut to your story on his, on his own, Zach's story on his own. And then once he saw that and he looked at some transcripts that you know we had gotten, he was like, I think we can get this film into something. And that was, that's before he even came on to edit with me. And so, you know, at that point we just, um, you know, I waited for him to become available. We, 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 like... Sort of card out everything on a digital whiteboard, and we divvied up the work. You know, like you take this section of film, I uh, take this one, you take that one, and then we would edit side by side on a kitchen table in an Airbnb that I rented. And then you know we stitch it together, watch it down. You know, go get a beer, go surf because I rented Airbnb in Venice, California, where he lived. And then you know we come back to, the, to to the to the room and talk about it and then like rewrite the board and start that process all over again. So we did that for a couple of months and, um, you know, slowly my story finally made sense as this puzzle piece that you have to figure out as you go along. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, we had a lot of feedback screenings. Um, you know, some people get really smart notes. Um, one of the big ones was we had a screening at David Fugenheim's office and yeah, at that point, we had multiple, we had sort of, like, all these character endings. It's like, okay, now Nina's story is ending. Now Kier's story is ending. Now Zach's story is ending. And he was like, it would be great if you could land all these planes at once. And so we thought about that. I was like, oh, okay. And then pretty soon after that, I remember being at the Airbnb. Josh was at home, and he had just smoked some weed and was watching an episode of Bloodline. And <laughs> he, like, noticed this, this like, intercut montage between different characters. And he called me, and I was like, hey, what if we try intercutting all those endings? And I was like, okay, let me try it. So I tried it that night uh, and Josh came over the next morning. We watched the first half and we both looked at each other and we we're like, okay, this is how we're going to climax film. And so things like that is like sort of the, that, that that's the sort of the, the fabric and, and the feel of how we work together.
2: Oh, shout out to Netflix's Bloodline for helping inspire uh, some editing techniques <laughs> That is, and, and I like the way you put that. It's it's landing a lot of planes as, at once. There's so many stories going on in Minding the Gap. Uh, you've got yours. You've got you've got Zach's. You've got Curious. You've got, as you mentioned, Nina. Everybody's kind of up in the air, and you want to try and stick the landing. And I think whether you're making a documentary or whether you're making a narrative film, a superhero film, whatever, you you got to try and stick the landing and have that ending come together. Um, Speaking of endings, when you showed the film to uh, the subjects, uh, specifically Zach in particular, uh, you you mentioned in previous interviews that he took it pretty well and um, was relatively happy with uh, his portrayal in it. And were there any reservations that you had in the editing process about how you were portraying Zach in particular? Because he's got some really rough moments. He's got a very rough storyline throughout the entirety of the picture. Uh, Were there things that you wanted to change post, uh, you know, finishing the movie or looking back now, things that you'd want to change?
0: No, I'm pretty happy with the film because they were all they they were all supportive and were on board with the project. before we picked we showed them shortly before we picture lost um you know and they and then we got to a place where everyone was on board with it, so you know like i like that's that's what makes me happy is that you know like they feel like this is you know like a good a good story that's told but no, I wouldn't change anything.
2: Well, it's fantastic to hear, and I, I want to mention that this is a film that has won uh, plenty of major awards. The Chicago uh, Film Critics Association Best Documentary National Board of Review gave you uh, Top 5 Doc, and of course, as we mentioned, Academy Award nominee for Best Featured Documentary. I wanted to ask, when are you, uh, when are you plan on heading out to Los Angeles for the big ceremony? Uh, well, I'll be
0: there. I'm in New York right now. I'm going to be uh flying over there to uh monday night in a red eye and then there's a few events that we'll be attending that week and then most of the teams and the, and the cast come out uh friday saturday
2: and i have to ask um i know that you were credited as a as you did like a um you directed a segment for america to me is that correct
0: I directed three storylines with three three students that have their stories woven throughout the turn part series.
2: Great. So I just want to know is there anything coming up next, or are you just trying to take it one day at a time?
0: Yeah, I have two documentary features one going in the post, and one we're about to start production on. I have a couple fiction projects in development.
2: Well, it's very exciting to see a, a Midwestern filmmaker achieve such success and really, honestly, one of the best documentaries of the year filled with, you know, so many other great documentaries. Minding the Gap is something that you cannot miss uh, from 2018. Again, uh, we this is Bing Lu. Director and producer of Minding the Gap. It's available on Hulu now, and uh, you will be able to see what happens uh, Academy Awards-wise on this Sunday. So um, stick around for that. We're going to be talking plenty of Oscars. Uh, Bing, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've got a totally slammed schedule, but we really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks so
0: much. And I'll just add that it's going to be broadcasting on POV February 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern.
2: Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So the, another option to watch Minding the Gap. Uh, Bing Lu. we will talk to you very soon. Uh, best of luck in all your endeavors and best of luck on Sunday.
0: Thanks so much.